This is Hart Hagen. You're listening to The Climate Report on Forward Radio, WFMP 106.5 FM, Louisville. My guest is Ricardo Aguirre. Ricardo is based in Arizona. He is 25 years into a civil engineering career with a focus on hydrology, stormwater, flood control, and groundwater recharge. As part of that, he has trained himself in holistic land management and is executive director of the Drylands Alliance for Addressing Water Needs. Ricardo, how are you today? I'm fine, Hart. How are you? Great, thanks. Ricardo, you live in the American West, which is famously drying and desertifying. Do you have a solution to this problem? Well, I'd say nature has a solution to this problem. And we're just leveraging nature's intelligence and applying those practices, nature-based systems, to work to demonstrate that the issues in the Southwest on water can be resolved. People normally think of flooding and drought being the opposite thing, two opposite things. Flooding is too much water and drought is not enough water, but are flooding and drought related to each other? Yeah, they are. They're related to each other through the hydrologic cycle. So as you indicated, I'm a civil engineer and my focus is in drainage. And one of the things that we study is the hydrologic cycle, which is dramatically changed because land has changed. And much of the former world grasslands have now become desertified. And when that has happened, or as that has happened, it changes the hydrologic cycle. Um, Under a functioning watershed, the land tends to transpire as opposed to uh, evaporate. So transpiration is a a function of plants giving off uh, water in the atmosphere. And when that occurs, you have a local microclimate. When when plants are removed and you've got bare soil or rather desertification, then that local microclimate, that local hydrologic cycle is not there anymore and you get droughts. Uh, But then you also, when the rains come, they tend to come from oceans, uh, bringing in large clouds and large events that happen infrequently but when it does happen it uh, happens in quite a bit of volume of water so it's definitely a change in the hydrologic cycle and that's a that's a, a cliff notes version of how it's changed it's a lot more detailed than that and uh, there's a lot of information if, if people want to drill down on the details but but essentially it's just this this change in a local hydrologic cycle to a much more regional a hydrologic cycle that uh, that changes these uh, this relationship between floods and droughts. What can you do to increase the amount of water that runs off during a rain event? Well, to increase the amount of water to run off during a rain event, you, you can do what we've already been doing, which is increase the desertification, uh, which is something I don't think we really want to do. We probably want to prevent that from happening. And when uh, through desertification, we're actually increasing more flooding, more soil loss, more dust storms, more wildfires. 
So what you can do is you could remove soil organic matter, which we've done a really good job at doing by removing mm -hmm. livestock from the land. Let's say not livestock, but megafauna. Mm -hmm. I, I actually was communicating with an official recently, and I, I, I told her that what we're just looking to do is mimic the Pleistocene era. And she indicated, well, the Pleistocene era was different because it was much wetter during that time. <laughs> I said, well, I didn't really want to respond to her uh, directly, but, you know, she's making my point for me. There's a reason right. that the Pleistocene era mm -hmm. was wetter because we had functioning watersheds. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, yeah, it's changed. We're not in that era anymore. And largely uh, man-made deserts, formerly grasslands, have, have, have changed that wet condition of the Pleistocene era. So... Hopefully that that kind of makes sense. Uh, so what you do is you remove megafauna or large undulates or ruminants from the land. You break the mineral cycle. And when you break the mineral cycle, you break the water cycle and you get more runoff and more flooding. So hmm. basically we're proposing to do the opposite and we're demonstrating right. practices to get livestock as a former uh, mimicking those former grazing animals. Uh, to demonstrate that we can uh, get the mineral cycle repaired and then the water cycle repaired concurrently and 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 catch water where it falls. How can grazing livestock have a positive impact on the land? Well, just to continue what I was saying, the specific, let's say mechanics, if you will, or the specific outcome is that you've got the hoof action of medium to large ruminants in in our case in the form of cattle and sheep and that disturbs breaks up crusting of the bare soil uh, can even break up compaction mm -hmm. and so what we're doing is we are mimicking a form a predator prey relationship that had coexisted with perennial grasses for many thousands of years and we're showing that when we break up the soil capping and we create these small depressions where they step it's an opportunity for rain to fall and be caught there and to penetrate into the ground and then to germinate seeds and for seeds to grow and then in time uh, hopefully it's not so completely bare it's a moonscape but they also are trampling plant matter into the ground, they're dunging and urinating. And so uh, with that, you've got the biology in their ruminant. The cattle have six stomachs and sheep have two. And so there's a lot of biology in their stomachs. And so when you concentrate that in a high stock density situation and distribute that, and you distribute that dung and urine and trampling evenly, and along with the grazing, then you're you're really mimicking what the keystone predators have done in the past with former grazing animals. And so all we're doing is uh, we're we're mimicking this with high stock density, getting that mineral cycle triggered up again and and creates a sponge for uh, water to, like I say, get caught where it falls. Ricardo, you've studied under ranchers such as Gabe Brown and Greg Judy, who are somewhat famous in the regenerative agriculture space. What have you learned from them? 
Well, I was fortunate to be on a panel with Gabe long ago. He he may not remember, but I certainly do because he's such a luminary in this space. And this was back in 2015 in California, and I was looked at as the water guy. And he was he was really the I'd say the figure um, that everybody you know listened to because of the work that he had done at that time. This is in 2015. Uh, he since had invited me out later that year to his ranch, and I flew out to North Dakota to see him. And I, I I'm affiliated with other luminaries that he's associated with Alejandro uh, Carrillo, for example. Um, and I like to bring in these folks into my contracts um, with that I have with local state and federal level uh, governments. And it's an opportunity to rub shoulders with them, learn from what they're doing. Uh, Greg Judy, uh, however, is is I'm, I'm more active with him. Uh, I've been to his grazing school. Uh, actually, I'll be going and taking a, another engineer in May uh, to his grazing school, and the uh, the school will be in early May. Uh, Greg has been out here to Arizona probably. Uh, I think four times now he's been to our demonstration site here in Red Rock, Arizona, and he's been to our Cochise County project called Three Canyons down by the Mexican border about three or four times now. And in fact, he and Jan helped build uh, the improvements, the land planning improvements. Um, so it's just it's it's been uh, a wealth of knowledge with both these guys, but because I I spend more time with Greg and and it was by design, Greg, as an engineer, Greg really laid out the blueprints, and so I was compelled to reach out to him and go on a farm tour, uh, and I like to say it's the blueprints because Greg really drills down in the details, and I'd say when it comes to holistic land management, there's there's a lot of detractors. Um, one one area of detractors are that they understand that holistic management works, but it's a lot of work, which immediately signals that they don't understand holistic management. And that when you set up the plan properly, the project is not a lot of work. It's a matter of just going out and opening a gate or moving a fence, and it really shouldn't take more than an hour or so just to move the animals. Now, there's obviously the need to observe their response to plants and so forth. But this is where, you know, I tip my hat to Greg because he really drills down into the details of what fence posts to use, what high tensile wire to use, what pliers to use even when you're building a fence, how to set up corner posts. He's written two books that are specific to this craft of holistic land planning. And then he also is a wealth of knowledge when it comes to grass-fed genetics. Um, I think that's incredibly important mm. as well, because I, when I started to get into some of the information he was sharing with me, I, I actually, this might be sound unusual, but I think there's a direct relationship between what's called animal confirmation and flood control. And animal confirmation, as I learned from a, a book that Greg recommended, which is uh, Reproduction and Animal Health, the, the author was, is, takes measurements 
of the heart girth, the distance from the head to the backbone and other measurements of the animal. And these measurements are important because they signal the health of the animal. Hmm. And mother nature calls in three ways, but chief, well, I didn't say chief among them, but one of the ways, as we mentioned already is predation. Mm -hmm. And so the predator is going to remove the weakest, not like what Darwin says, which is survival the fittest. That's actually, hmm. that's actually not true. I, I found out that Darwin actually plagiarized off of a commoner named Robert Wallace. Hmm. And, and his paradigm was not survival the fittest. It was elimination of the weakest, hmm. which makes the most sense because the wolf is not going to go and chase the strongest amongst the herd. They're going to clean up Mm -hmm. the weakest right and so when you look at confirmation and, and animal confirmation and you look at the measurements of the animal it actually speaks to this is how this is mother nature's intelligence system and that these animals are uh, have these measurements for a reason because these measurements are signaling strength and the ones that aren't measuring up are will tend to be the weakest and mother nature by design will call actually in three ways one is predation, which we mentioned. The other is uh, groups organizing, uh, like a wolf pack, for example, but herbivores do it as well. They'll naturally because of predation, but wolves will never organize in order to take out another wolf pack. They'll always organize to remove the weakest link within the pack. Hmm. But the most, I would say the most important form of uh, selecting for fitness or eliminating the weak is females um, selecting for fitness. I mean, no species would really exist unless there was a qualified female selecting a male to advance the species. And one of my favorite uh, stories, and I think this is important. I want to get back to, you know, to Greg and I'm going to tie the loop here. I think this is important because um, as the story goes, I, I read a book called American Serengeti each chapter was on one of the great megafaunas of the south of the excuse me of the western states and it one chapter was on pronghorn sheep and every season females would come out of their harem and observe males competing for endurance and speed and when they finished the competition the female pronghorn sheep would go mate of course with the fastest and the most mm -hmm. one that had the most endurance. So mm -hmm. that's an example of one species where the female is selecting for fitness and uh, she, you know, the female is not going to go for the slower one. So I think this is, you know, those three areas and, and, and Alan only really talks about predation uh, as I've dug into this and observed, made out my observations. There are these other forms of selecting for fitness that I think are incredibly important. That's why, I wanted to tie it into animal confirmation because you can measure again the animal based on what Greg had taught me, and uh, that's a form of intelligence uh, that nature has kind of installed, if you will. And there's a direct relationship to the hydrologic cycle, or let's call it hydrology, and then there's a relationship to geomorphology, and then there's a relationship from that to ecology. So. It might have been a little bit heavy there, but I think it's important um, because a lot of people maybe take a lot of what goes on in nature for granted. And that's why I think, you know, the work that Gabe and, and, and Greg are doing are important. And, and, and just coming from it from a philosophical angle, the, the material that I've learned from them and that 
like I say, Greg, the books that he's recommended, it's really expanded my vision for how nature works systematically. This is Hart Hagen. You're listening to The Climate Report on Forward Radio, WFMP 106.5 FM, Louisville. Ricardo, you have a ranch in Arizona. Tell us about your ranch and what you're doing there. Well, I'm, I'm, I guess, fortunate, if you will, uh, to be a part of one of Arizona's pioneer ranching families and to be very transparent. I'm the fifth generation here in Arizona. Um, I think it would be cavalier to say that I have a ranch because to be honest with you um that what as little is left uh, I'm doing what I can to turn things around but what we had you know four generations ago three generations ago with my grandfather and great-grandfather were you know somewhere like eight to ten thousand head of cattle and several ranches between here and Mexico and Unfortunately, because of uh, the conditions and, and probably mismanagement and family members not seeing eye to eye, uh, that ranch, those ranches and the last of, of uh, the ranch that I grew up on or the three ranches that I grew up on uh, don't exist. However, I'm, I am going through family transition planning and there's enough here uh, to create a demonstration site. And so that's actually what it is um, going through family transition planning with my mother and taking what is left working with uh, West consultants. Uh, uh, I think that's very important because West uh, is my employer and they have seen the vision uh, that I've put in front of them in terms of developing a land management service line. And so West has invested in an eight acre piece of property that used to be my family's horse pasture. It's adjacent to Interstate 10. And then we have grazing contracts um, with uh, a a holding company, a land holding company uh, where we used to raise cotton and we manage cattle. So we actually have control of about 300 acres um, that we are uh, practicing these methods of uh, nature-based systems. So it's really a learning laboratory and it's conveniently located because we're literally 30 seconds off Interstate 10 between Phoenix and Tucson. The the demonstration site that West owns, again, is eight acres and we're looking to open up this year for people to come in and see what we're doing. Uh, So as a learning laboratory, educate them so they can see animals and they can see the response of how we're converting the certified land back to uh, grasslands. And from your earlier questions, showing how we can resolve a serious water crisis here in Arizona and the Southwest. You have restored your home landscape to one that captures most or all of the rainfall. Describe what you've done there. Yeah, so in my journey of coming back, I guess, full circle from working around the U.S. and, and then coming closer to the Southwest um, and then finally back home uh, to where I grew up, uh, I, 
I'd say my journey started when when my son was born and I was wanting to make sure that I left the legacy behind for him and his generation and beyond where he and uh, his contemporaries and future generations are able to enjoy the resources that you and I enjoy today at the same or better. And so it's this vision of making sure that we leave this place in a better situation than it was when I showed up, so to speak. And one of the chief resources that really gives is the catalyst uh, for life is water. Uh, so I embarked on this initiative to look towards um, practices and it happened organically. It's not like I knew. I mean, I drank the Kool-Aid when I went to college and then graduate school in terms of what civil engineers were supposed to do and how to manage storm water. And basically we were taught to treat it like a nuisance. Mm -hmm. And the only tools that we were given was a pipe, a channel and a hole in the ground. And I didn't really know any better. And growing up on the farm under a conventionally uh, conventionally farming practice, chemical management, uh, pumping groundwater and irrigating water intensive crops like cotton and alfalfa. I really didn't know any better, but I felt that there was something there. And, you know, even at that time, I, my son is 12 now. And back then, we were facing serious crisis. Even when I was his age, back in the 80s, we were facing a serious crisis. And that's why Arizona has laid out the Groundwater Management Act, but now that's being threatened. Uh, so I thought that I, I thought it was important to share with you, Hart, because it really has set up this direction of what am I, what can I do with my home environment? You know, what can I prove to myself? And so things like rainwater harvesting. Uh, I, I got certified in 12 years ago, 12, 13 years ago with the organization called the Watershed Management Group. And I got certified in water harvesting and they taught three things. Uh, one was earthworks. And so that's to create depressions and then to put vegetation in those depressions. And then you're capturing water off the roof and then gray water. So this is secondary reuse for the bathroom and for shower water for laundry and so that water is not going into the sewer but it's actually can be go out to irrigate and then finally uh rainwater cisterns and so i had a uh, collect was collecting somewhere like eight thousand gallons of water or, or was able to and then use that for uh for irrigating landscape so these are things that uh, i was doing from a mechanical standpoint um but then it really opened up when I started studying holistic management into this demonstration site that I'm sharing with you. And that the relationship between soil organic matter and soil water holding capacity, um, in other words, soil life acting like a sponge, right? And so mm -hmm. I think it's important for your viewers to understand that for every 1% of soil organic matter, the land is able to retain anywhere from 20 to 60,000 gallons of water per acre. So if you go to 2%, then that's 120. If you go to 3%, that's 180. And so really we're looking to demonstrate a, a soup to nuts of how we can capture, store, and establish long-term water security for future generations. That sounds fantastic. 
Um, what would you like to see happen in the American West if you had a if you had a high level position that can make things happen? What would you recommend? Well, I I think I, I think we need to be actively and aggressively managing our land better. So whether that this so-called high-level position would be with a, a state level or a, a federal level, uh, we need to focus on our land. And I, I, I really truly believe that if we properly manage our land with actively managed livestock and we scale up uh, a lot of we're, we're consultants for, again, local, state, federal level governments, and we're noticing that there are other consultants out there that are using mechanical, chemical, and manual treatments. And the reality is, is that nature didn't evolve with these systems. Mm -hmm. These systems only evolved out of the industrial age, which has only been around for 150 years. Mm -hmm. And if you look at a law called the Lindy effect or the Lindy law, it states that the longer something has been around, the, 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 the likelihood that it will continue to be around a long time. And when you look at technology, you can see this, you know, we don't really have rotary dial anymore. Mm -hmm. We rarely use fax machines because it's all in our, in our cell phone. But I think that's important also to point out because life on planet has been around for on planet earth has been around for 4 billion years compared to the industrial age which has produced science and technology that's only been around for 150 years and civil engineering by the way is a product of assembly line industrial scientific thinking and that's where the pipe channel and the hole in the ground comes in so i i, I really believe that we need to shift our perspective back to nature, hitch our wagon to something that's been proven for 4 billion years, as opposed to something that's only been around for 150. And if you look at, if you overlay that 150 years with the desertification of the world's grasslands, it's pretty concurrent, which mm -hmm. suggests we haven't been doing a very good job with these technical scientific practices and that nature had it dialed in all along uh, and evolved in, in, in perfection. Ricardo, this has been a wonderful conversation. How can people stay in touch with you and possibly support your work? Well, we have a website, uh, drylandsalliance.org. Uh, again, we've been uh, somewhat bootstrapping this. West Consultants has been very supportive. Not only have they do we own and operate this demonstration site under West Consultants that help to seed the development of the nonprofit, which is Drylands Alliance uh, for Addressing Water Needs? DON is the acronym. Um, I'd say, you know, have people either reach out to you if that's okay. And then if you get a list together, uh, send that list over to us and we're going to. We've got a, a master contact list and that uh, we're planning to have a grand opening here for our demonstration site. And then also people can go to the drylandsalliance.org website now um, and just, you know, be vigilant towards when we're open. But uh, there's a lot of information that we've already put on the website in terms of what we're doing. So that's uh, that's probably the best thing. 
any any officials here in the Southwest that might be listening to your interview, you know, I'm always looking to partner with the local state or federal level. We've got a lot of precedents already with with projects. We've got a project in New Mexico with the Department of Transportation. We've got projects with local counties. Uh, we've done a large natural resource conservation service projects under the PL566 program, uh, which is the Watershed Protection Flood Prevention Act out of Congress. And so more of those kinds of projects, I believe, are needed. And if there's any decision makers within those three level of governments that would like to learn more, I would like to um, understand how we deliver a project, uh, I'm more than happy to sit down and explain that. We've got the model dialed in. That's where my engineering background has helped quite a bit to figure out how to develop a land management project. And that's what I think sets us apart as great as Gabe and, and, and Greg are uh, and other luminaries. Um, I think we're really skilled in being able to deliver a land management project for uh, the government arena. But we also have private, pro uh, private sector clients as well where we're delivering a project. And it's been working out pretty, you know, very, very well, actually, here. And it helps to have this demonstration site to showcase what we do. Sounds great. Thank you so much for joining me and keep up the good work. My pleasure, Hart. Um, looking forward to staying in touch with you. And it's always nice to see uh, to see you and um, appreciate you reaching out. And um, yeah, keep me posted and let me know if there's anything else I can do to help you out. Will do. I look forward to working with you going forward. Okay, sounds good. This is Hart Hagen. You're listening to The Climate Report on Forward Radio, WFMP 106.5 FM, Louisville. My guest is Roger Savory, who is an ecologist, a consultant to landowners, and an authority in holistic management. Today, we're going to talk about holistic management. Roger, how are you today? Hi, Hart. I'm good. Even when I'm bad, I'm good. Sounds great. Roger, tell us, what is holistic management? Um, I don't really think holistic management is anything, but uh, what we call holistic management is a different method of making decisions. And it's a different method of making decisions based on Jan Smuts, who wrote a book called Holism and Evolution. Um, I think it was 1936, if I remember, remember rightly. And in it, he told uh, the world's experts that we would not understand the world until we realized that it functioned in holes and patterns and spirituality. Um, and uh, so when we stepped back and looked at the world again through different lenses, um, we realize that, yes, it really does function in holes and patterns and, uh, and humans have a deep spirituality. And, uh, and when we understand the holes and patterns and stop thinking linearly, then, uh, then we, we just have more success in management. So how was holistic management developed? So it's, it's been a long journey. So obviously Jan Smuts came up uh, with the pat with the idea of holism and evolution in 1936 but you have to look back at who Jan Smuts was 
So when he was 16 years old, he was a Boer general fighting the, the world's greatest empire, the English Empire. So as a 16-year-old Boer general, he, excuse my French, but he kicked the British's butt up and down South Africa. He um, pioneered the commando troops. Uh, he led, led guerrilla forces behind enemy lines and attacked the British rail systems all the way down in the Cape, you know, thousands of kilometers from where the actual battle was. Um, so he was a, a brilliant um, tactician and, uh, and, and thinker. He was educated in the United Kingdom at uh, top British universities. I think it was Cambridge, if, if I remember rightly. And come World War I, he was so respected by the British that they actually made him a English general. So imagine taking your enemy from the last war and making him your general in the next war. You only do that if you have a deep level of respect for the gentleman. Hmm. After World War I, he was instrumental in creating the League of Nations. Um, and the League of Nations, uh, and he was the one who said, if we ask Germany for reparations, I guarantee we'll be in another war within 20 years. Hmm. The world didn't listen to him. He was just a young man. And exactly as predicted, within 20 years, we were in war with Germany again. During World War II, the British made him a field marshal. He was field marshal, Jan Smuts. And at the end of World War II, he was such a famous and well-loved field marshal that New York City gave him a ticker tape parade in New York City at the end of the war. Now, how is it the man that was so famous has so been forgotten by history? It's just amazing. The next thing he did was he created the United Nations um, after World War II. So a, a really deep thinker, but, uh, but he was a farm boy growing up and he, and he understood nature and he understood people and he, he was just a deep thinker. So holism and evolution is what we respect him for, but you can see all his thinking was military. Uh, he was a lawyer by profession, law, military, strategy, biology, and he was able to think about everything together. I think he was one of those uh, really deep thinkers that the planet has every now and again. I think the one 2,000 years earlier was called Jesus. Um, but, um, but he was a deep thinker. And so he came up with that um, in 1936. Then um, my father, Alan Savory, he read his work, was obviously very impressed. Um, Alan was a uh, uh, special forces military member of parliament, trying to bring a civil war to an end, also grappling with biological issues. And when he uh, read it, he saw the connection. And so then holistic management developed from this idea of we needed to understand the whole to understand the parts. And then when looking at the complexity of how do we manage these complex systems, um, the British military um, system developed at Sandhurst for battlefield planning in chaos and, um, and stuff like that was adopted into holistic management in what was called the holistic grazing plan. And these grazing planning charts were, are actually identical to what the British military used for 800 years to conquer the world. 
So it's a very good method of getting the chaos of battle. Oh, these guys are attacking from here. These guys have run out of raw material. We need fuel. We need ammunition. We need troops moved. How do you put all this complexity into one plan so that all your generals and everyone understand it? So that complexity was then um, put into um, holistic management, and that was kind of the step one. And then there was the understanding of the need for... Um, for managing finances. So then holistic financial planning was developed. And then um, as it's progressed since about 1984, it's 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 never stood still. It's 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 a work in progress as we think more deeply about it and think about what it means. So what is holistic management today? Well, it's nothing more than a decision-making framework. And we make all our decisions based on the quality of life we desire and the future landscape description, how we would need life to be in the future to allow our great-grandchildren to be living the same high quality of life, socially, economically, and environmentally. And, uh, and that, because humans think linearly, we have to try and think about numerous things simultaneously. So in a nutshell, all holistic management is, is a different way of thinking and managing our resources and our lives. You may have already answered this, but who can benefit from using holistic management? Um, Hart, this is very difficult to say without sounding like the most arrogant individual on the planet. But I truly believe this. I've been doing this for 30 years. I've been watching others do it for 30 years. I've watched the incredible changes happen on all the continents of the planet. I've lived in 64 countries myself. If all humans don't start doing this and start doing this soon, we're all actually doomed to extinction. So governments have got to do it. Families have got to do it. Mining corporations have got to do it. Family farmers have got to do it. Schools have got to do it. So who? Everyone. Now, we concentrated with farming families in the beginning because we had to think about well, what's the low-hanging fruit and what is the most important group to understand this concept to buy us the most time for getting the rest of humanity to understand it? And we realized that those producing our food and those currently turning the desert, the world into a desert um, through the unstoppable process of, of global desertification, what we now call climate change, we understood that we had to start working with people at the grassroots who produce our food and who produce our deserts. So once we could convince them that if they just changed how they made decisions, we no longer had this unstoppable train wreck of desertification, we could reverse it um, and regenerate it. So you'll hear a lot of people now talking about regenerative holistic um, agriculture. That's just a reframing of the words holistic management. What is context and why is it important? So, you know, it's so simple um, when, when I explain it, you'll go, you know, that's, that's so obvious. We, we knew this all along, except you didn't. So um, if I ask a very simple question um, of you, Hart, I say, Hart, should we, should we light a fire? It depends. <laughs> no, no, that's not what I asked. I said, should we light a fire? 
it's an unanswerable question unless you know, um, you know, unless you know the context. Unless you know the context. Exactly. So currently nearly every decision we make in life, we make without a context. Mm. And if we had to analyze it, nearly every decision we make, we make towards solving a problem without understanding the context within which we're solving a problem. So I'll come back to the fire question. Uh, it looks like your house might be nice wood with drywall. Yeah, if you make a fire behind you, uh, no, your house is burning down. Mm-hmm. Okay, so should we light a fire? No, but it looks like there's a fireplace behind you. Mm-hmm. So maybe if the context was it's cold, it's wintry, it's snowing outside, then the context is within a snow cold environment. Should we light a fire within our fireplace? Well, then it becomes very easy to know within that context. The answer is yes. Now, if you were hungry and you needed to cook your food, should we light a fire to cook our food? Yes, within that context, that's the right. But if I just ask you the blanket statement, should we light the fire? You don't know. Well, it's the same for everything. Um, All the decisions we make, all the policies government come up with, they don't come up with them within a context. They just come up, they, they mistake the problem mm-hmm. for the context, mm-hmm. you see? And so when we just widen our horizon just a little bit and state what the context is within which we're making a decision, then it just becomes so easy to make the decision. Now, what a holistic context is as opposed to a context a holistic context, we just say that for every decision we make, we're going to describe what we would like our family, society, and culture to look like. That's the one leg of the three-legged stool. We then describe what resources and income and profits we would need to maintain that family and community. That's the second leg of the stool. And then the third leg of the stool is for us to have that quality of life and for us to generate that income and that profit to live that quality of life, what would our environment 500 years into the future need to look like? Now, I've done this for 35 years. I've never had someone say, In the future, I want to live in a desert with blowing sands, no flowing rivers, pollution everywhere, air that I can't breathe. Um, No one's ever described that as the future environment. Everyone describes wanting clear flowing rivers, wildlife, abundance of nature, abundance of, of plants, clean air, birds, bees, flowers, Everyone describes that as the environment they want to live in. So why every day do we plow up 400 million acres of America and turn it into just bare blowing sand? Why do we have trains crashing and billowing millions of tons of toxic fumes into the air? Why do we build nuclear bombs to blow the planet to smithereens? Where in our context of describing the future environment, did we say, no, we wanted air we can't breathe. We wanted soil that was bare and lifeless. 
um, and we wanted a uh, an atmosphere that's so toxic to life that no life forms can live on it because it's you know got nuclear radiation in it. We never once described that. So why are we making decisions towards solving a problem that are creating that? So a holistic context then describes our society and culture and family, the income we need, and then what the environment would have to look like. You cannot support any society and any economy if the, the world's atmosphere is full of nuclear radiation. Mm -mm. You just can't do it. So how did that become our decision to proliferate nukes? You cannot support any community any society or any economy with air so full of toxins that people can't breathe and can't live and fish die in rivers. So how did that become our decision? You cannot support any economy or any society with bare blowing sands. America already has 81 million acres of desert. 200 million acres are at risk of turning into desert within the next 70 years. The other 200, sorry, the other 400 million acres is uh, considered at risk of desertification in the next 70 years and becoming unable to grow crops. Where, where do we think a context where we're making decisions towards creating that can support us economically and socially into the future? Well, as soon as we say that, we, we sound really clever and we make everyone else sound really foolish. I'm not trying to make everyone sound foolish. I'm just saying, people, stop making decisions towards solving a problem. Mm -hmm. Back off, create the context, describe the future you would like, and then, only then, decide how to solve your problem. So, for example... Right now, oh, there's pests in my garden. There's grasshoppers eating everything. Without the context, get DDT and bomb the hell out of them grasshoppers. You're going to kill them. Mm -hmm. Without the context, using DDT to kill grasshoppers was a totally viable option. Mm -hmm. <laughs> as soon as I had a context and I said, in the future, I want to see butterflies, birds, bees, and everything, well, shit, DDT also kills all of those things. What's going to pollinate our trees if all the insects are dead? No, I just wanted to kill the grasshoppers. I didn't want to kill everything. But you see, without a context, I had a solution to a problem, grasshoppers, that unknowingly killed everything. And it wasn't until Rachel Carson wrote Silent Spring that she warned us. And she didn't even warn us of a context, but she painted a picture of the environmental side of the context that made us all sit up and go, no, that's not what we want. We've never wanted that. Oh, my God, let's stop doing that. Mm -hmm. So we made a law to outlaw DDT because we thought that was the problem. And we immediately replaced DDT with even worse chemicals. Why? Because we still had not created the context, the holistic context where we described our society we described our economy and we described the future environment. So we have to learn as a globe, as global citizens, to create holistic contexts, socially, economically, and environmentally, and then, and only then make 
resolutions, make policies to solve problems within the context. So Roger, this has been an enlightening conversation about holistic management. What can people do? Um, Hart, for any change to take place, we've got to start with the children. So, um, and we know this from all the research, we're in a race against time. So we have to get this knowledge of holistic management into our education system in all the Western and non-Western countries. Uh, the knowledge is there, there are books written, there's people who produce children's education. We've just got to make a conscious decision to get it into all the PTAs and all the schools you know, across the world. That's step one. The second step is we've got to um, put on training programs for government cabinets, and uh, congressmen and senators for all the governments around the world, it is literally, we can train a government in one week. In one week, we can train a government how to create a national holistic context for the nation and then for the senators, congressmen, cabinet, whichever, whether you're in parliamentary system or a congressional system, for the leaders to then utilize that national holistic context to then analyze all their own policies to make sure their policies are being written within their national holistic context and not within the context of solving a problem. It really is something very easy. We've just, as the citizens of the world, we've just got to demand it of our leaders. Right now they're fearful because you're fearful of the unknown, but I mean, it really is nothing to be scared of. Once you've got your national holistic context, you make all your decisions the exact same way you always have. It's not a cult. It's not a personality. It's just, hey, let's look at the big picture. Okay, now within our nation, solving that problem, now that we have looked at the big picture, will this, in effect, um, help us solve it? And then within the, um, the, the context and holistic management, we have, uh, yeah, I'm getting old, but I think we've got... Uh, the nine testing uh, or filtering questions that we use to just analyze that every policy will actually take us in the direction um, we want to go. It's really, really simple. We teach villagers with no education in Africa how to do this. Mm. Um, you know, we can teach a government within one week. It's not difficult. But like Winston Churchill said, when all the experts say it can't be done, find new experts. Well, our civilization is on the verge of collapse. We're all seeing the problems. I believe we have a solution. Talk to us. There are enough people trained in holistic management globally to get this knowledge into cabinets, and it'll be rudimentary. It'll be like riding a tricycle at the beginning until people you know, grapple with it, think more about it. But the initial thing can be done very, very quickly. Um, and, uh, and I'm going to quote Churchill again because he said, until all men are governed well, none are. Um, and, and I believe it's because we've never understood the context within which we're making decisions. And Smuts talked to us about it over a century ago. And I think we need to listen to him and uh, pay attention and think about what we want spiritually and then look at the holes and the patterns and, uh, and just create national holistic contexts at a governmental level, at family levels, at farm levels, at mining company levels, 
one of the big mining companies uh, you know, got this training 20 or 30 years ago. And I look at their policies and they're fantastic policies and no one understands why, but the board were all trained about, you know, it's about 25 years ago. So, um, you know, so we know it works and we know it works long term because the companies that did get trained a long time ago are doing well. Um, so, yeah, bottom line, how do we go forward? Encourage your senator, encourage your con congressional um, thing. Buy the book on holistic management. Read, um, read IPA, Independent Parties of America, um, on Facebook uh, for, for how you create um, political parties based on holistic contexts. You know, the answers are out there if people want it. Sounds like the world needs holistic management. Roger Savory, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Hart. This is Hart Hagen. You're listening to The Climate Report on Forward Radio, WFMP 106.5 FM, Louisville. I've got about six minutes left. Let me talk about the untold story of water and climate. It's the untold story because people who are talking about climate change are not talking about this, and they should, because water and water cycles uh, hold within them the power to cool our climate in a way that is relatively quick and clean. And the principles that you need to understand are basic high school physics, basic high school biology, basic experience. For example, when you step out of the shower, it's cold because the water is evaporating. When you step out of the swimming pool, it's cold because the water on your skin is evaporating. It is literally carrying heat away from you because it's transforming that energy. You know, energy doesn't disappear, it just changes forms. And the heat energy is being transformed into a form of motion energy as the water evaporates. This is called the latent heat of vaporization. This is called evaporative cooling. When water evaporates, it creates a cooling effect. Now, the people who are talking about climate change tell us that we need to maintain relatively stable temperatures on Earth. We don't want the temperatures to go way up. We don't want the average temperatures to go way up. So they're telling us that to be safe, we need to stay within about a 1% 0.5 degree Celsius uh, warming range. We can do that with evaporative cooling and it requires that we utilize ecosystems. The foundation of ecosystems, if you will, is plants. Above ground ecosystems are mainly plants. The thing is, we as humans have removed about you know, half of the plant matter on Earth through deforestation, through land degradation, through desertification. There is not as much plant matter as there used to be. Plants, like all living things, are a reservoir for water. Plants hold water within them, and plants transpire water. Transpiration is like perspiration. It's like humans perspire, plants transpire. So if we have enough plants and we have enough transpiration going on, then we have that evaporative cooling. 
We experience evaporative cooling when we walk under a shade tree. It's cooler under a shade tree not just because the shade tree is blocking the sun, that's part of it, but the other big part of it is that the shade tree is transpiring water. There is a lot of water in the process of evaporating underneath a shade tree. And it's not just the isolated lone shade tree, it's a forest is going to have more water evaporate, evaporating than the same area that lacks a forest. And all plants do this. Any ground that is covered with plants is going to be cooler than ground that is just bare. So if we could take some of our crop fields and cover them with cover crops, if we could take some of our deserts and restore them to the grasslands they once were, because deserts are mainly man-made or human-caused, if we could take some of our human-caused deserts and turn them back into grasslands where there is more plant cover, then we would have more evaporative cooling going on. One of the scientists that I follow estimates, this is Walter Yenny in Australia, J-E-H-N-E, estimates that if we increased the plant cover on earth by 20%, then we could fully deal with all of the excess heat that we've got going on as a result of global warming. So why don't we do this? It's not as if we couldn't do that and at the same time deal with atmospheric carbon. We can do both. In fact, plants can serve to take carbon out of the atmosphere and put it into the, into the soil where, they, where it can do good in the soil. And then when you have good soil, you have more plants, you have the soil holding more water, you have the plants transpiring more water, and it's a virtuous cycle. Walter Yenny and like-minded people think that this is the quickest, safest, cleanest way to cool the climate. Ecosystems with water coursing through them not only hold water, they not only transpire water, they not only uh, evaporate water so that we can have evaporative cooling, but they also tend to regulate temperatures so that you have less extremes of temperature. It's not as hot in the day, it's not as cold at night, it's not as hot in the summer, it's not as cold in the winter when you have an abundance of plants doing this thing called evaporative cooling. And you might say, Hart, if this is so effective and powerful, why aren't people talking about it? Well, that's a whole other conversation that we'll have to save for another day. That's all the time we have. Bye now.